Matthijs. So we're recording today a really unusual edition of the podcast in an unusual moment in global history. I am recording from my tiny attic study and family room. Hi, yes, yeah, I'm in my own little study. Uh, and in fact, I, I just moved to this place. It was only just ready in time. I already like it a lot. There's a big tree in front of my window with tree creepers, those little birds that look like mice collecting uh, nest material from the tree. So I, I'm all settled. Oh, lovely. And today it is just us, which is another unusual thing. Um, Matthias and Rachel, just the two of us, because this underlines how this is one of these moments where as an historian, I'm thinking, wow, I'm really living through this. And people like me will be teaching it in 20 years. It's a moment that I know my grandchildren, or if I have them, if I'm lucky enough, will be asking about. Humans have faced global pandemics before, the plague and the great influenza of 1918, for example. Yeah, a big historical moment. But on the other hand, I was just reading a piece by Frankie Boyle, and he said, did you ever wonder what you would do during the apocalypse? Turns out we're all working from home. <laughs> uh, so not that spectacular. And I was thinking perhaps in 1918, wasn't it like that? Like, did it feel rather ordinary when you were in the middle of it, perhaps? I don't know. And that's also the sort of theme for today, how exceptional times can be, in a way, not just exceptional, but also a continuation of systems already in place, but now with a magnifying glass pointing at them. For example, with corona, capitalism is in the middle of it. And in the past pandemics and epidemics we'll discuss today, Empire and colonialism, they're our jam, <laughs> of course, uh, they were also still there. And the horror and the heroism involved in these massive health crises, they play out against that background. They do. So our idea for today was to both dig up a story of an epidemic of the past. And of course, we both picked one that played out against a colonial backdrop. And we would try and see how they're related to each other and to the current moment. So which one did you pick, Rachel? One dear to my heart, the dashing Maori leader, Tepuya, who was sometimes called Princess. Uh, she hated that name, but other people called her that. She guided her people through war and epidemic in early 20th century New Zealand. And you? Oh, cool. Uh, my story is that of Chipto Mankunkusumo. Uh, he's an Indonesian anti-colonialist, uh, a doctor, and he battled the plague in East Java in 1910. This is Unsettling Knowledge, a Utrecht University Uglobe podcast looking at the legacies of colonialism and post-colonialism in our day and age. So Tapuya and Chipto were, and I, am I pronouncing that right? Chipto, yeah, as, as far as I can judge. Chipto. Yeah. And they were, like us, caught up in a tumultuous time of colonialism, war, and pandemic. They also reflect our own interests and backgrounds a bit. So we're doing parallels on parallels here. Uh, who were they? Yeah, introduce uh, Tepuya. And also, question is, am I pronouncing that right? Yes. Can you introduce her in like a minute? Oh, a minute. That's tough. She was born in 1883. Uh, within 20 years of bitter wars between Maori and English settlers, 
And she was born into a chiefly family charged with the care of their people. But she rebelled and she had a bit of a wild youth. I mean, you get a hint of that in a beautiful early photograph of her with long flowing dark hair reclining in a glorious Maori feathered cloak with a whimsical sort of mysterious and slightly knowing or mischievous half smile. Tapua led her people in opposition to World War I and supported her men absolutely when they refused to sign up for service, despite huge pressure from other Maori tribes and leaders and the New Zealand government. She then became a nationwide beloved figure for her leadership during the Great Influenza and raised many of the orphans from that pandemic in her own home. She adopted them. She couldn't have children herself. She formed Maori performance groups, which brought Maori music, dance, and the haka if you've ever seen the rugby, the haka, to Maori and to, yeah, to European audiences. And any money she made, she put straight back into the land. She supported Maori farming and the building of beautiful marae, Maori cultural meeting houses. And she won land rights and acknowledgements for her people. So when I learned about her at high school, I remember learning about, you know, the haka and her health work and the flu, but not so much her anti-government, anti-war activism. Hmm. Impressive story. And I immediately see a parallel um, because right with the health work earning her praise and not the activism, that's sort of the path that colonial society had uh, ready for Chipto too. Potentially, that is. He, he didn't take the path. I'll probably have to explain it. So he was born just three years after your hero in 1886, and he can best be described as a mild revolutionary which is, of course, a contradiction of terms, but it captures his position. So he was too radical in the eyes of the colonizer, but on the other hand, not nationalist enough in the eyes of the next generation uh, national revolutionaries. Shahir, who later became Indonesia's first prime minister after uh, independence in 1945, he once said about Chipto that he was wondering why the Dutch hadn't used him more for their ends, sort of suggesting that Chipto would have been the perfect foil for a colonial government if it uh, wanted to suggest that there was some progress towards uh, self-rule. And this image of Shahir might also have to do with the fact that Chipto was very subtle and mild-mannered, but you should not be mistaken, that didn't diminish anything of his radical and very principled stance. That's fascinating because, I mean, there are many anti-colonial pro-independence leaders, actually many of them born in the 1880s, who faced a similar critique both in New Zealand uh, but also around the world where they're seen because of their mild-mannered kind of working with authorities, they're seen as a bit assimilationist. Right. But anyway, returning to the news of the day, is there a pandemic in your story? (laughs) No, no, uh, there's no pandemic. There is an epidemic, uh, a plague in East Java. Uh, It broke out in 1910, and this was early in the life of Chipto. Uh, He he just graduated and was what was called a native doctor or Dr. Java. (gasps) That's, that's late for the plague, but it was in Egypt as well, I think. Anyway, that's the reverse of Tapuya, who only had a primary school education. But again, it links Chipto with some of the male Maori elite, some of whom were Western trained, highly achieving scientists and doctors. Which university did Chipto go to? Uh, yeah, not really a university. It was um, a school, rather. Uh, called uh. Stovia. I'll spare you the, the where the Dutch abbreviation stands for. Colonial Indonesia was pretty much a segregated society, of course. And this school was an initiative from the colonial government uh, in 1899 to have a form of uh, formal higher education for Indonesians. 
But of course, it was also separated. So it allowed them to maintain their racialized class politics. Mm. So this place, it trained students to become sort of uh, nursing practitioners. A bit more than that, it had quite a high level. Uh, and some students even uh, proceeded to obtain their medical degree in the Netherlands after having graduated from ah. Stovia. More importantly, though, it was a pretty cool hotbed for early nationalist politics. Uh, and this is the, really the start of Chipto's awakening, politically speaking. So he was a fresh uh, Dr. Jawa in 1910, and he volunteered to help battle the plague. And this is where the, where the parallel is with your story, I think. If it would have been up to the Dutch colonial government, uh, this is what we would have remembered him for. They praised him. They gave him a, a medal for his work there. Not just a medal. In fact, he was made a knight in the Order of Orange Nassau. Ooh, fancy. And um, here's, here's where the parallels come in, because Tepuya received a CBE, uh, but that was much later in life. A CBE is? Oh, it's, yeah, it's... It's a knighthood? No, or? it's not a knighthood. It means commander of the British Empire. <laughs> How imperial is that? Uh, very colonial. And it's actually just below a knighthood or a damehood. Um, but it was awarded to her with great ceremony at the Marai, as I said, the gathering house, Turanga Waiwai, in the heart of her region. Because after her vocal anti-war stance between 1914 and 1918, she embarked on a really ambitious health and community work program. Uh, she founded the Marai. She literally built it from nothing. I mean, she worked with some of those orphans. She ripped gorse out. She cleared scrub right beside them all through the 1920s and 30s. And her aim was to provide a less swampy, more hygienic and healthy regional center for Maori, a home for her people. Her work was augmented by government funding. So the state really worked with her and funded her. And she was fully supported by her well-educated fellow Maori leaders who were members of parliament, even though they'd really adamantly disagreed, like very much contested against her during the war. So in some ways, her CBE was, was the ultimate sellout. And in others, an enormous honor. Both of these things are true. And it definitely marked a move away from overt anti-colonialism. Although even in defiance, even in her anti-war activism, her friend and the journalist Eric Ramsden notes that she was nonviolent and she could have turned things violent very easily, but she did not. So in some ways, some parallels with Chipto and in other ways, different. She moved from anti-colonialism uh, more to collaboration. What happened for him? Was that move the same? No, indeed, an opposite trajectory almost. So as I said, he got that knighthood in the order of Orange Nassau, and he got it just after having uh, battled the plague. So that was in 1911 or 12, thereabouts, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but then for him, it was more or less the beginning of his disillusionment uh, with the colonial government. And in fact, just a few years later, he sent that medal back. Wow. He saw the praise. Yeah, he did. He, he did. So, <laughs> Because what, how he saw it, he saw the praise, but he also saw the way and remembered the way he was treated during that epidemic. And he couldn't square that. Things like having to argue for every single case with his Dutch superiors. And he would locate an infection and then uh, he would have to fight hard to get that person quarantined. And his Dutch supervisor's main interest, meanwhile, was, and I'm quoting him from his report, uh, main interest was not to create work. Yeah, to... uh, well, sorry, I was just thinking that reminds me of, you know, just don't make a fuss, just shut up and put up, you know? That's exactly the attitude. Um, yeah, his superiors would say, would, would just curse him with a godverdomme, um, 
that's what Kipto reported. That's a Dutch profanity. Godverdomme. Uh, so, Godverdomme. Uh, so he, he grew pretty frustrated uh, and understandably so. And he was basically screaming, do something for my people against an indifferent administration. And he soon learned to distinguish between the walk and talk of that government. So compared to that obstruction, which he had faced, he came to see that knighthood as an empty gesture. And that's probably one of the reasons why he uh, was at ease with sending it back. That's also the pattern that repeats later. A colonial officials talking about imminent self-rule for Indonesians and all that. And he saw that it was just that empty talk. So, as you said, in fact, uh, opposite trajectories. It was the, the knighthood was the start of his nationalist career. Well, yeah, I mean, some actually something that I noticed, that's exhausting work, the way you describe it, to work not just for his people, but to constantly have to do that sort of emotional and political labor as well. And that is true of Tepuya, despite her movement toward government rather than away from it and sort of toward the CBE. She actually once said, you know, I work, I pray, I sleep, I eat, I work again. <laughs> and it was always on behalf of her people. So that was completely consistent through the course of her life. And it makes sense, her kind of turnaround from defying the government to working with them in that sense. But the optics seem like a radical reversal. And, and she worked so closely with the government at some times that some Maori critics nicknamed her Mrs. Government. And, you know, and you see it like because people, you know, numerous foreign dignitaries, New Zealand statesmen, royalty, they all visit Turanga Waiwai Marai, her Māori Marai, because she was a known and notable composer of Māori song and waiata. She wrote in one of her waiata, you know, we will munch through the work together uh, to the Governor General of New Zealand. Um, there's a slight double entendre in that song, but uh, we'll move along. Um, but, you know, she wrote of the two peoples also being in parallel canoes, parallel waka, and needing to respect each other's culture, but also travel together. So that's kind of rapprochement, which sounds very different to the missed opportunity that the Dutch colonial authorities kind of, yeah, missed with Chico. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Shahir, right? The, so the later prime minister who... who uh adopted like that a missed opportunity yeah. um it it is probably true that they could have uh, cooperated with him with chipto chipto for one he didn't hold grudges or at least i mean he probably did we, we that speculation but he never let them stand in the way of anything he saw as progress so for instance if you compare uh, 1913 He's exiled in that year to the Netherlands. So it's arguably a very low point in his relation to his colonial overlords. But then in 1919, he accepts a membership in the Volksraad, uh, People's Council, the colony's first parliament. It's, or it was a sham parliament, we know now, with a small number of Indonesian members, uh, which, was, which was progress before that there were no Indonesian members. So it, it held some promise for real reforms initially. So that made him accept but hang on, that. Wait, hang on. You said exiled? Yes. So, yes, so yes. he's exiled. He is. He was. Uh, his first exile of many, in fact. Uh, so in, in short, with this one, after that plague epidemic, he becomes politically active. And the companion of his, Suwardi, uh, he writes a flaring pamphlet against Dutch rule. And Kipto is involved uh, in that too. He defends the pamphlet. Uh, and as a result, they both get exiled to the Netherlands. That's about the time when he decides to deliver that knighthood back. So a missed opportunity? No, it was only a missed opportunity if the Dutch really would have wanted to make real, concrete, 
fast steps towards self-rule or even independence. And that was something they very clearly did not want. I mean, they didn't even want that pamphlet, which was not even something that would mobilize the masses or anything. It was rather a, a very well-written, subtle, but scathingly written commentary on the situation. The thing was colonial officials were uh, personally insulted. That's why they reacted as they did. So Chipto, a missed opportunity only for a colonial government that never existed in reality. And actually, if, if we think of it, the term missed opportunity itself, I mean, it, it's coming from Shahir, but the term suggests very much a colonizer's perspective. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a great way of thinking about it because, you know, Chipto tried. Uh, and, you know, I think for Tepuya, you could think about an opportunity that she both created herself, but also, mm -hmm. you know, there is this movement of collaboration and that comes in part from her fellow Maori MPs, one of whom, by the way, also wrote a scathing pamphlet about the British. And they asked, you know, they asked him to bring his performing group to some government ceremony. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it until you guys talk more seriously to us about land rights. So there is this, uh, this movement. Anyway, Tepuya missed opportunity. Uh, she didn't face that. There was this greater collaboration. And I think that came again from her grounding into her sense of uh, responsibility for her people. So she had been born into a tribe, an iwi, that fought the British really hard. So that anti-colonialism is absolutely there. That's there from uh, the beginning was there from the beginning and she took opportunities. Yeah, so she didn't have the colonizers perspective. Her tribe had had land confiscated and she was a descendant of the kingly line. When Maori decided to elect a king to sort of try and play by white European rules um, and unify around a single kingly figure, they unified around this king, although some Maori always always supported the British and, and had done since first contact. And that tension really carried through the war. So some of the more elite Maori, the leaders with whom Te Puya later worked, saw the war as an opportunity to prove their worth, to win respect and representation, and to stand, and I quote, shoulder to shoulder with Pakia. Uh, Pakia? Oh, Pakia is Pakia, a white sorry. New Zealander. White New Zealander. Pakia. I... So anyone who's Pakia. not Maori. Right. But Tepuya, no. She responded to the demand to fight for king and country uh, with the following words. She said, we've got a king. And until you give us our country, we won't go. Wow. That's a very good line. Indeed, very anti-colonial, anti-government also. Uh, and how, how did it continue? Yeah, well, so I've said a bit about that. But after this vehement anti-government, pro-Maori, anti-conscription stance, she actually wins this major concession from the government, which apologizes for land confiscations. There's a legal commission inspired by her called the Sim Commission, and they give monetary compensation and a formal apology for the land confiscations. And that's what Tepuya wants. And so she wins that for her social work with her iwi, her people, and for her health work, which actually brings us back to, you know, the coronavirus pandemics, which is the second theme of the show how these sorts of anti-colonial politics were amplified in times of crisis. And I just saw a headline, which I think was clickbait, but anyway, it was something about, you know, the socialist versus the millionaire and how each approaches Corona. And, you know, that adds to a number of comments I've seen on social media and in news sources 
that suggest that health crises shine a harsh light on broader social and economic realities, which, as we know, are related to colonialism and post-colonies, the status of having been a colony. So, you know, Tapuya, she wins respect partly for her work in the flu epidemic, in the flu pandemic, in which she literally gets up like our heroes today, she gets up off her own sickbed and starts boiling water, washing linens, um, and mopping brows of her sick people. Yeah, right. I, I do see the, the parallels there. So they're, they're both working in hard circumstances with a risk for their own health, doing the dirty work for their governments. I mean, Chipto, uh, as, a, as a Dr. Jawa, Dr. Jawas were trained primarily to give vaccines to people, to, to be the frontline when battling uh, epidemic diseases. I'd love to hear more about work in the crisis because I'm watching the news today and seeing these healthcare workers really in the forefront of the epidemic. And it got bad for Maori in the Great Flu. So what about in Indonesia? Can you give us some more detail about Chipto's work? Well, he received a medal for his tireless work during the first outbreak of the plague on Java. So that's 1910. And more outbreaks would follow in the next decades, actually, uh, more severe ones. Uh, the 1910 outbreak is usually described as relatively minor. It nonetheless claimed some 15,000 victims on uh, on Java alone in uh, in the years after. Uh, 15,000. I mean, one of the phrases we keep hearing is every number is a face. Every number is a victim. So 15,000 sounds like enough to me. Exactly. exactly. And they also hit, I mean, those numbers, they're, they're all faces, not evenly uh, distributed over in an entire country. In fact, here it was Malang, that was hit. So it's 15,000 people dying in, in one region. And the 1918 flu, that must also have hit Indonesia. It, it did. Um, I mean, if we if we do continue the, the number talk, um, that plague of 1910 was nothing compared to the flu. The flu of 1918 claimed one and a half million deaths. So Whoa. that's, yeah, that's, that's like a hundredfold what we were just talking about with the plague. Uh, and that is the low estimate even. I, uh, I saw a recent study uh, that said that this number had, had to be revised significantly upwards and that the death toll on Java alone, so not, on, not in entire Indonesia, but Java alone could have been as high as a staggering four and a half million. And that is on a total uh, population of around 35 million. I, I can't even, I mean, that's that's just huge. That's so it's sad. Very huge. I mean, such a high figure that it even has an effect on the worldwide number of casualties that has to be adjusted uh, upwards in, in full percentage points. So yeah, huge. And, yeah, huge. And I mean, here the resonances are really rich because I heard you say it didn't strike uh, Indonesia equally because in New Zealand too, the great flu had just a devastating effect. In both cases, we're, we're not the first to notice the similarities to the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that pandemic, in the great flu, it came out of America, actually, Kansas. And American mm-hmm. soldiers brought it to Europe. Uh, and I always find this fascinating because one of the things that makes World War I global is the way it spreads people and ideas, including anti-colonial ideas, but also germs to different populations around the world. Right, so it's, it's World War I that brings the flu to New Zealand. So they, they fall in Europe, I suppose, as part of the British Empire? Yeah, first in Gallipoli, Egypt, uh, they stationed in Egypt, but then just under 10% of the total population serve in the war and most end up in Europe, including many Maori soldiers. So 
After fighting, they returned to New Zealand with the flu to this really isolated island nation. I mean, you say four and a half million died in Indonesia. New Zealand's whole population was 1.1 million. <laughs> and so it's tiny. And there's no resistance to this new bug. I mean, there's no immunity. So between October and December, between a third and a half of New Zealanders, as far as you know, statistics tell us, got the virus and 9,000 people died. So proportionally, it's really bad. And the effects, as you were describing on Indonesia, are very uneven. And this is true of COVID as well. It took a terrible toll on Maori, the great flu. So their death rate of about 42 per 1,000 was comparable of a European death rate of 5.5 per 1,000. And I've seen estimates of the relative death rates, which suggest that Maori died between four and seven times higher rates than white New Zealanders. That's a big difference. And I mean, it, it seems to me that communities that receive less care might be the ones with more uh, unreported deaths as well, right? That's those mm. recording vagaries then. We see similar reports today, like COVID is not a great leveler. Uh, minority communities are infected more often, and that means that there are more people dying. Yeah. Uh, and remember also that the 10 British doctors who've died so far, well, that was as of about a week ago, while working in hospitals, battling the coronavirus, they are all black, Asian, minority, ethnic, BAME, as it's called in Britain. So here's where we begin to get even further into the politics and complexities of pandemics and to perceptions, because during the great influenza in New Zealand, some commentators thought that Maori suffered more from the flu because of ethnic weakness, like racial weakness, or filthy cultural habits, or ignorant, out-of-date medicine. And these are all pretty prejudiced perceptions, because in fact, Tapuia, who, as I said, was boiling water, cleaning linens, she was doing all she could to integrate their traditional medicine with modern techniques. And actually, at one point, some white women in her area tried to have her ejected by the health authorities. They were like, they're so dirty. And Tapuya greeted the health inspector and she showed him her earth-floored uh, house and the bag-walled huts. And she, but she said, we are poor, but we are clean. Right, so it wasn't hygiene, but... What did explain the disparities then? So back then, and a little bit today, I think, far more relevant to the spread of the disease were the close community living, greeting practice of the hongi, which involves touching noses and sharing breath, poverty from land confiscations and ongoing population decline from war and disease, which are absolutely associated with colonization. And then also the difficulty of accessing health services. Many Maori lived in remote rural areas. And as with the war, um, there were feelings of ambivalence and resentment. And particularly with the flu, there was such great grief. And Murray felt that after fighting, after their sterling service in war, they were suffering again. So somebody called Apara Tama Rupani wrote to the newspaper, to the editor of the Auckland Star in December 1918. And he said, in most Maori homes today, there is weeping and desolation. Boys have died across the war. Whole families have been wiped out by the influenza. And there are many aching hearts. The statistics in Maori communities looked a lot like those in Te Puya's own community, where of 200 adults, one community member said only three of them 
escaped the flu and 50 out of 200 died and it hits adults hardest and young children are more resilient to it. So this left a lot of orphans and actually Tepuya intervened on their behalf. She placed them with families or she raised them herself. She parented many of them and uh, they were her children. So it was a really hard time and there was some real heroism. It must have been terrifying. And in the case of the great flu, the dissatisfaction with the health service, actually, from the whole population, not just from Maori, led to an outcry, which in fact led to a 1920 Health Act, and that transformed healthcare in New Zealand. So I was wondering if that happened in Indonesia and whether Chipto was involved. If only, if only. No, it, it doesn't always lead to something better. And I mean, at this stage... Uh, no major healthcare improvements in, in Indonesia. It's still a colony. And Chipto, to get back to him, he did see this point clearly that social inequalities come to the fore also, or maybe in particular in battling a disease. When the plague hit Java, it was the first time ever that it reached the island. So it was a new thing. The government had to mobilize battling the disease. And Chipto, he fiercely fiercely argued that the administration should do more, uh, which means spend more, that they shouldn't just let the disease run its course uh, until it would wither. Yeah, I mean, that, that was an option on the table. Uh, indigenous lives didn't count uh, much in colonial eyes. What Chipto saw is battling a disease costs money. Burning houses, for instance, that's also something that is necessary sometimes. And people would only cooperate with that if they were provided new housing. Of course, they were poor. I mean, if your house is burnt, you need a new one. And Chipto said, if it's in everyone's interest that the plague is eradicated, everyone should pay. So it seems that also back then, a disease outbreak sparked discussions about what we should collectively pay for and what not. Same discussions as today. <laughs> the socialist versus the billionaire or the millionaire. You know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I'm watching the current news cycle with great interest to see how that plays out because, you know, so much of this sounds so familiar. I mean, New Zealand closed down bars and restaurants. They banned public gatherings. And they had, in New Zealand, there were public testing facilities and these funny, these rooms where you could go and sort of be sprayed with a special gas. Yeah, it sounds awful, but you could could inhale a special gas does, to, to yeah. fight the germs, which absolutely didn't work. But the race and health disparities, you know, as in many other former colonies, post-colonies, sometimes we call them, New Zealand has big health disparities that cut along ethnic and socioeconomic lines. Um, and in some areas, Maori life expectancy is just 69 compared with 81 years for the general population. And the list of chronic conditions that in part explain that read like pretty much a summary of COVID-19 risk factors. So diabetes, chronic respiratory disease, asthma, cardiovascular disease, hypertension. Is this the same in Indonesia, in the Netherlands? Well, what, what I do know now for the Netherlands, we're still waiting for the, the media to even start asking these questions. They do report on, on such disparities when it comes to the UK or the US. But here, we, we had a columnist in one of our main dailies, Bert Wagendorp, and he even wrote something along the lines of, this disease hits everyone regardless creed or color. Uh, so even though it's not supported by fact, the idea that this disease is a great leveler is still very much alive. And, it's not really a hopeful thought. I have, I have to admit so much. 
Well, you know, I want to end on a positive note. I always do. Um, so to Puya's influence, I'll go back to her because actually she did have a positive and powerful influence on New Zealand culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you've ever seen the All Blacks play, I mentioned this before, you've seen the Haka, which was part of her cultural revival work. And uh, Te Puya Marae, uh, which is an offshoot of Turanga Waiwai Marae. Anyway, a Marae she named after her mm. now provides home and health resources for Maori homeless specifically. And homelessness is a huge problem. Uh, particularly in Auckland in New Zealand, uh, which is the largest Polynesian city in the world, by the way. So Tapuya Marae has helped 332 families since 2016, and they're watching and trying to figure out what to do in the wake of COVID. So I think Tapuya would be really proud of that, but she'd definitely be yelling at some folk. So, you know, like the students who are still out partying and spreading the virus. Um, and, you know, she loved kids, especially her own children, but she told them off ferociously if they misbehaved. And she stomped into parties and pubs when she thought young people were behaving badly. And she'd shake her stick. She had this iconic walking stick and um, headscarf. And so she'd stomp in there with her headscarf and shake her stick at the, the bar owners. And she told her young people to look after themselves, learn and not get distracted by too much partying, but work hard to make life better for everyone. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't you describe her as a party girl? just before <laughs> yep so you know this is a little bit hypocritical or, or maybe the wisdom of experience we uh, we have to conclude i think i right? think so um so both stories have parallels divergences uh, but they both show us that the virus charges us to think a lot including uh, of course the legacies of empire and colonization uh, and that we should interrogate not just who is suffering because that might perhaps be universal but what is not universal is the grief the degree of suffering the daily uncertainties and adjustments uh, that people have to yeah, make Do you I, agree? no i mean i'm not sure i agree that uh, i mean i think grief is universal and suffering is universal but the degree and the extent to which certain communities are suffering is disproportionate. Right. Degree is the key word here. Yeah, and and I think those differences are profound, and they reflect larger differences in society today that provoke us to ask questions of social justice: who suffers disproportionately, why, and how we can address that. And you know, if this podcast helps you to begin to think about that, then I think we've done our job. Right, social justice on the table. <laughs> Always. Right? Always. Always. Okay. Wait for our next episode. We'll think of something to do even in these uncertain times. Yes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>